wondered if any of you were Seinfeld fan fans. Right, one, one guy. There was an episode, I think it was called The Face Painter. You, you'll, you maybe remember this quirky little dialogue or set of dialogues in there where there's a guy called Alec who has tickets for a Rangers game. And so he offers those tickets to, to Jerry and Seinfeld takes them and it's a great game and all that kind of stuff. So Kramer arrives in his typically sideways entrance, shuffles across the room and says, so did you thank Alex f for the, the tickets? And Jerry said, no, I, I, I thanked him when he gave them to me. I thanked him like several times when he gave them to me. No, 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 don't you know the way the world works? You have to make a thank you phone call. And the, the dilemma that Kramer had was that there was another game and uh, apparently this guy has tickets to that game as well. And Kramer says, if you don't say the thank you, if you don't make the thank you phone call, we're not going to see that game. And Jerry's like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, I'm not going to, you know, cave to this. And through all the rest that goes on in the episode, this little conversation keeps coming back, and Kramer says, did you make the thank you phone call yet? And uh, it gets all the way up to the almost... To, to the time of the, the second game that they hoped they would get tickets for. The tickets have not been offered. In the meantime, they have gone to a funeral, and Alec, the guy who had the tickets, was also at the funeral. So when Alec arrived into the funeral home, um, Seinfeld said hello to him, but he didn't get a very responsive, you know, friendly hello back. And, and so he wondered about that. And then he wondered if there's a different way to say hello to people in the funeral home. And he excused himself and just said, I think it was a quite a good funeral home hello. So I think we're good. Well, Kramer is still like, yeah, you have to say thank you. You have to make the thank you phone call. And Jerry just fights it off, fights it off, fights it off. He finally makes the phone call just in the nick of time about the second game. And he says, I'm calling to just say thank you very much for the tickets for the Rangers game. And Alex says, oh, I wish you would have called me sooner because I did have tickets for tonight's game. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've given them away. And like Kramer's like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. The thank you phone call. Don't we all experience that where somebody does something nice for you and you wonder how, how you can say thank you or should you say thank you or how much should you say thank you or how, all of that stuff that goes on in our heads. Well, it brings us to the, uh, the Enneagram and you'll see, I think, how it fits into what we're talking about in this, in this little series. The Enneagram, I, I just want to keep on putting this out there. It will not put you in a box. It will help you understand what box you tend to put yourself in. So um, as some of you have become interested in the Enneagram and even asked questions about how to, how to find out what your Enneagram type is, is there a good online test or is there a good test that you can find in a book or something? The best advice is to say, don't go and try to do a test on yourself to find out what your type is. Just understand the nine types and see when you see yourself, maybe in one or more of them. See when you identify other people who may be similar to the type that that one describes. And at the end of that whole process, maybe it becomes clear, maybe at least you have sort of an understanding of the, of the nine typical ways that we find ourselves in boxes. 
but mostly we want to know, um, is that what's in my life that really needs to be taken out of the box, or do I need to get out of this box and um, find freedom? Uh, we will sing at the very end of the talk today um, that the Spirit is the one who, who does all of that changing in us, and, and that's the hope that we have. So let's go a little bit farther, and we're going to talk today about the second type. So there's the list of the needs, and as I said last week, I think the, the, the most helpful way to describe the characteristics of the person in each of the types is to identify the need that they are um, trying to fill, trying to meet as they either understand their box or get out of their box or happily reside in their box or whatever it is. So we looked last week at the need to be perfect and the, the Bible character who taught us about that was the Apostle Paul. And today we're going to go to the second one, which is the need to be needed. And Mary has made sure that we are, you know, equitable. So it was a guy last week, so she had a lady this time. Um, and I'm going to justify that and go to another guy. We will come to some ladies in the Bible that help us exemplify some things as well. But the one that we're going to talk about today is John. John the Apostle. And that is um, the biblical example of a person who needs to be needed. Let me... I'm, I'm not going to get all technical on the Enneagram too much. If you're interested, we can talk. We can do maybe do some online things or, or live things here. But one of the ways that we can kind of characterize the Enneagram and our journey through it is to say that there's one of the types, one of the nine, that tends to be the cabin we live in. And there are two cabins at either side. So today we're going to be talking about the need to be needed, and that's the one cabin. And one neighbor is the need to be perfect that we saw last week. Another is the need to succeed that we're going to see next week. But um, we live in a cabin, and it's where we're at home. But we can always go to the neighbor cabins on one side or the other. And typical theory for the Enneagram says that there's usually one wing, one of the two neighbors that we also lean on and draw from in the way that we live through life in our type. We can also go to the apple orchard every now and then, or we can go to the outhouse. So every Enneagram type has an outhouse and an apple orchard, and in this case they are... Um, the need to be special and the need to be against. And the need to be special is the apple orchard, and you don't need to worry about the apples right now or the arrows, and the uh, outhouses, the need to be against. All of it is a bit, you know, fuzzy in our minds. But if you're trying to, to understand how a person who needs to be needed thinks and operates, just think about the characteristics of its particular demeanor, and then who are the neighbors that the person who needs to be needed might continually go and visit, but always come back home, because the place that's home is the type that we're part of. And then when things are going very well, we may stray over to the need to be special. Uh, and we'll talk about what that means in a few weeks as well. When things are not going well, we may tend to go to the outhouse, which is the need to be against. 
I, I think we probably will find that there are times and ways that all of the types show up in us. And there have even been some studies showing how that Jesus is really um, the, the fulfillment of all of the, the best qualities of, of the Enneagram types. Um, I, for, I'm not an eight, I don't think, but for years I wondered why I was so eight-like. All of the boards that I was serving on, I couldn't understand why I tended to be the one against things. Couldn't understand why I always had the sort of the hand up saying, why, or I, I don't think we should do that, or I think we should do something other than that, and maybe it was a bit of the eight kind of showing up in me. Well, <coughs> I want to take you through a little journey in the Gospels, particularly through the Gospel record of John, and we're going to see what it was like to be an apostle who needed to be needed. Here's what we learn in the Gospel record of John, and you will see that there is one phrase that recurs that we're going to talk about. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon, Peter, gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. So Jesus had just declared that one of them was going to betray him. And they were all at, at um, a meal together, and there apparently is one who is right close to Jesus, and someone nearby, who happens to be Peter, um, says to that one, ask him who he's talking about. Ask him who he means. <coughs> so Peter leans over, and he says to John, as we will discover, ask him who he's talking about. Another reference in the, in the Gospel of John. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his, his mother, Woman, behold your son. This is on the cross. And there is one of the disciples and some women who are at the cross. And Jesus speaks down to the little group. And he says to John, Behold your mother and to, to Mary, behold your son. <coughs> Thank you. The need to be needed. Another part of the gospel record of John is after Jesus has been raised from the dead and they have an empty tomb, um, we read, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Again, the disciple whom Jesus loved. After the events following the resurrection, the disciples have gone fishing because they've quit. They've just said, we're no good at being disciples. No. They were led by Peter, who was sort of the, the spokesperson uh, for all of their victories as well as their failures. And now Peter says, I'm, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm done with this. And the rest say, okay, we'll go too. And, you know, as, as sure as you can imagine, they fish all night. They were fishermen. They couldn't catch any fish. They're no good at being disciples. They're no good at being fishermen. They are two-time losers, right? And all of a sudden on the shore, there's someone who's speaking out to them. And we read um, that when they looked and listened, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Peter 
turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's a little bit after the breakfast when Peter has been restored. So Jesus um, identifies himself on the shore. John, the one that Jesus loved, said it's the Lord. They go on, and um, Peter and Jesus have this very interesting conversation when Jesus asks him a, a very provocative question. Do you love me more than they do? And Peter answers, I'm, I'm really fond of you. And Jesus asks him three times, you know, but the third time he changes the question and says, are you fond of me? And Peter is broken. He says, oh, you know everything, I'm, I'm fond of you. Like he, he wasn't going to claim anything more than to say he, he really liked him. So as Jesus then restores and recommissions Peter, um, Peter, he, he kind of... Uh, he, he, he tries to sort of shift the attention and he notices the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, never mind about him. You take care of yourself. W what does it matter to you if he should remain until the coming of the kingdom? And from that day on, they began to speculate that John wasn't going to die before the kingdom was 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 introduced. But anyway, um, again, it's, it's Simon Peter looking over and seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved. So nowhere in the gospel record of John does John identify that disciple. But by a process of elimination, we very quickly come to the understanding that it's himself. He's talking about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And th that begins to sort of open up a little bit of a window window into into John's character and demeanor and, and maybe his type. John was the quintessential helper, the, the quintessential um, person um, who was needed. And so in, in several instances in the life of Jesus and in the interaction between Jesus and his followers, um, John shows up as the loyal friend, like the friend you can count on. Um, Jesus says, who's going to take care of my mother? Well, of course, it'll be John, because John is his faithful sidekick, if you like. Um, as, as the disciples move along in, in following Jesus and, and trying to be um, good devotees of his, the, one of the people that is always right close to Jesus is John. So it's Peter, James, and John are the notorious three who are with Jesus. And we find that this, this sort of persona of a person who really needs to be needed begins to kind of show up in John. The, the curious question is, why does John have to call himself the disciple that Jesus loved? Like, why, why does he get to have that designation in his own mind? Um, is it because it's important for John to know that he is the beloved one, that he's needed, that, that Jesus makes the, the phone call to say thanks because John always shows up to be the person that Jesus needs and John needs to be needed. Is that a good thing or a bad thing or is it a mix of things in, in John's life? Was John always um, this kind of soft, kind-hearted, loving person who just loved to sort of snuggle up to Jesus, if we, if we can characterize him that way? Or, or was, was there more in John that, that we would notice? Um, there are two accounts in the Gospels where a very interesting question is posed to Jesus. 
one by a mom and one by two brothers. By the mom, she says, um, I have something to ask you, Master. When you come into your kingdom, um, I have a suggestion. I have these two sons. You, you know them, James and John. Could, could they sit at your left and your right? Another time we're told that it was the boys themselves that asked the question. They say, will you give us anything we ask for? And Jesus says, go ahead, try me. When you come into your kingdom, could we sit at your left and right? And Jesus pokes right back at them and says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Yeah, we're able, we're, we're good. That's a bit of another side of John, isn't it? I mean, John, you would expect to be self-deprecating rather than, than self um, sort of imposing and exalting. But here they are, and they're coming, and as brothers, they're basically saying, could you please say thanks to us? If, if we are your good friends, then surely when you come into your kingdom, you'd like us to be right there as well, and we would like to be right there as well. So could we have the, the, the places to the left and to the right of your throne? Another way that we get a bit of a and sort of insight into John's character is that one day they come to a Samaritan village and they need some hospitality and so they ask the Samaritans if, if they could enjoy their hospitality. The narrator says that they were on their way to Jerusalem. Because they were on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans said no you know that we don't get on with the Jews. You're on your way to Jerusalem, presumably for some feast or some festival for some Jewish thing. So, no, you're not welcome in our town. What did James and John say? Should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Does that sound like John? And I don't think James, I don't think he was the culprit particularly of the, the two he, he wasn't the one who was the spokesperson to say could we sit at the left and right he probably wasn't the culprit that said should we call down fire John, James and John were called the sons of thunder um, which, which gives some inkling I, I guess to the, the sort of the family inheritance or the, the, the traits that have come to them from their father they were the sons of thunder and the composite image that we have of John is that he is a very faithful, loyal support for Jesus. He is Jesus' dear friend. He's the one that Jesus can count on. He's the one who is explicit in his support of the movement that Jesus had come to, to enact. When we get into the letters of John, which were later on, um, in his letters we find there's a theme um, that's very, very noble, the theme of love. Um, everything about John's writings is the theme of love and the fact that we should love one another, we should love God, we should love one another, we should love our neighbors. Um, but sewn into it are these, these rather alarming warnings that John sews in and says, if you say, and finish the sentence, and you don't, you're a liar. And he, he's just hard-hitting. Like, he's a principled person that, that allows that 
being principled to show up in his personality, even as he writes very gentle and, and loving letters. So how do we piece all of that together and understand what the, um, the, the texts tell us? Um, is John's need to be needed a dysfunction um, or is John's need to be needed, his need to experience love in the sense of being loved by Jesus, his, his mentor, his master, um, is it dysfunctional or, or is it part of the person he is um, and the person that he's becoming um, with, with the lens of love in the look? It is only in John's record that the disciple whom Jesus loved is, is the designation that is used. Nobody, nobody else calls him that. So was John needy in saying that he was the disciple that Jesus loved? Was he claiming you know, favoritism that since he was the one that Jesus always let come and be right beside him, um, he was the one that even Peter had to have him speak for him, um, you know, why did John have to say it was a disciple whom Jesus loved? One thing John does tell us that begins, I think, to answer the question is this. In John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then we are told the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So the them of John 13 are the disciples. And John says, having loved his disciples. So John is open-hearted in declaring that Jesus has proven that he loves his followers. And then he, he gets quite extreme. And w when we translate it, he loved them to the end, it could also be translated, he, uh, he loved them thoroughly. And, and maybe that's a preferred translation because the context is that there's a so that comes after and it says, uh, he loved them thoroughly, so he poured water in a basin and he began to wash their feet and he began to love them thoroughly and, and to the end. So John's understanding was that Jesus loved all of his followers. John's thrill was the realization that Jesus loved him. And I think when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he wasn't bragging. He wasn't saying anything um, that would be untoward. He was, he was really saying, if, if, if I have any way that I would like to identify myself I identify myself as someone whom Jesus loved. That's, that's my identity. So, so maybe naturally he's, he's needing the thank you, but more dynamically and spiritually as, as John grows on, and remember, um, the gospel record of John was late. It was written like 60 or 65 AD, something like that. So he's reflecting now as an old man probably, on the life that he lived with Jesus. And then he's also writing to other people. And as he explores the whole thing, he, he distills it to the understanding that what, what matters and what only matters is that we are loved by Jesus and we are called to love one another. John says, in fact, 
the way that I will write the biography of Jesus is to identify that there was a person there who saw it all, who heard it all, and that person is writing the record, and that person is, let's see, what is he? He's a um, reformed fisherman, he's a great preacher, he's a great wordsmith, he, um, he's, he's a dependable, loyal friend. No, he's someone whom Jesus loved. Not the only one that Jesus loved, but the only and the paramount thing that should be noted about him was he, he was loved by Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let me just come here to describing what the, the person who is the um, need-to-be-needed person is like. Here's what one commentary says. Service is your middle name. You love giving to others, and as long as you're healthy, you don't need attention to do so. If you're unhealthy, you're probably looking for affirmation from others when you serve. Another example of this, the second type is Martha. So uh, I'll give you know, equal time to the, the, the female characters. Mary and Martha. Martha is the quintessential need to be needed. So what is Martha doing? Martha is working in the kitchen. She's doing dishes, pr preparing meals, um, um, looking after all of the needs of her guests, including Jesus on this occasion. And what's Mary doing? Well, Mary is in having a Bible study with Jesus. And Martha, who needs to be needed, also needs to be thanked. And when Mary is apparently unthankful to Martha, Martha speaks up. And Martha's too. Martha goes to the outhouse, and she gets against Mary, and she gets in Mary's face and also in the master's face and says, are you kidding me? I work my fingers to a bone and she gets to just have a theological discussion with you. And Jesus, you would think, would understand this and would maybe know that the thank you should be said, doesn't say, oh, Martha, you're right. Mary's, not, Mar Mary's just no good in the kitchen. She's not a great house cleaner. She's, she's not very helpful at all. He says, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. Now, you may want to argue with him about the way he describes how you should live, which is much about servanthood and all the rest, which would seem as though Martha was, was scoring points. But Martha, um, in the time in which she is stressed by the situation, she sort of, she turns into a shadow and that's what we might call going to the outhouse. And she, she just opposes Mary and says, okay, I'm tired of, tired of this. I ha I've buried a lot of resentment against you. And I'm not going to do that anymore. You need to help in the kitchen. And it'll get all sorted out, I'm sure, as, as the days and, and years went on. The need to be needed is, is, is a confusing need. Because those people who are dependable, those people who help us, those people who, whom we can count on, those people who are generous towards us, we, we love and we laud them. Um, 
But on the shadow side in their being is the need for somebody to notice that. Even Jesus, um, and to show that even the need is not always a sinful need. Jesus healed 10 lepers one time, right? And one came back to say thanks. And he said, wait a minute. Didn't I give you tickets to the Rangers game? Where's the thank you? Only one came back. Where are the other nine? So it's, it's a tricky type to be and to manage. And many, many times when a two um, goes to the outhouse, um, the two begins to just allow those resentments to surface. And if you're in a relationship with a two, if a friend of yours is a two, if, if um, someone that works for you or that you work for or work with is a two, um, then it's very easy to just see all of the ways in which that person is an enormous help and support and just not understand that they would just like for somebody to say thanks, to, to give flowers, to send a card, to make a phone call, to send a text, whatever it is. Because if they go to the outhouse, um, they become something to contend with when someone says, I'm just done being so helpful and so nice. On the other hand, if a two is doing well and is not under stress, then the apple orchard is the understanding on the person's part how special he is or she is, how unique he is or she is. And I will say to you that I think that is where John went from his cabin. He went to the apple orchard and he understood that what was delightful about all of this was that Jesus loved him. And that's all he needed. The person who needs to be needed doesn't need to be needed so much as he or she needs to be loved. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts and in our lives um, brings us out of the neediness or maybe the fallenness of, of our need to be needed and into the, when all is said and done, the only thing that matters is that Jesus loves me, that God loves me. What does it matter um, how few thanks there are when the one who means everything to me the one who created all that there is, the one who will judge all that there is, the one who will bring to be his perfect kingdom. When that person I know loves me, then I'm fine. And being well as a two is to understand that our vulnerability is that we may get so tired that we don't understand um, that people are more thankful than they're telling us they are. Um, and we don't need to um, hold a guilt trip over them to say, well, you, you know, you, remember I did that thing for you? You never said thanks. Um, the person who's in the orchard will say, I, that I didn't even notice because I knew that I was loved by Jesus. John says, I'm going to tell you the whole story of my relationship with him. By the way, I'm the one that he loved. Everybody else was too, but I 
He loved me. He loved me. And so I lived a life of service for him. And John says, and here's what we learned. By watching him and listening to him, we learned that the love of God is what it's all about. One of my favorite verses in, in John's letters is where John says, look at this. The love that God has poured out upon us the love that God has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And the only time in the New Testament that that little grammatic construction at the beginning of John, 1 John 3, 1 is used is when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples said, look at this, what is this? My goodness, even the wind obeys him. That same expression says, look at, look at this, how much God loves us, that we should be called his children. And that's what we are. So John says, near the end of his days, here's what matters. He loved me. I served him with all that I am and all that I have. Um, But he loved me. So children, love one another because love is from God. If if, if you want to know if you're from God, well, look, Love, God is love. If you are loving, you're pretty much in the zone. If you're not, don't tell me you know God. Um, and, and truth as well. The, the lovely pair of truth and love. Um, that if you say you love but you don't, how can that be? If you say you know the truth but you deny the truth, uh, how can that be? John says, my life's a pretty simple life. I began needing to be needed. I discovered that I was loved, and that's all I needed. And so, I am the one that Jesus loved. He, I am the beloved.